We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to American Warrior Radio with Ben Bueller Garcia. A special welcome to listeners joining us on our new affiliate, Patriot Talk Radio 920 in Houston, Texas. Welcome aboard, and I look forward to hearing your feedback. American Warrior Radio is coming to you from the Silencer Central Studios. Begin by visiting silencercentral.com to learn if owning a silencer is legal in your state. Their experts will work with you to find the right suppressor for your needs, complete the paperwork, and then ship right to your front door. At Silencer Central, they make silence simple. Almost exactly one year ago, we had former Delta Force operator and now New York Times bestselling author Brad Taylor on American Warrior Radio. Now, normally... It's somewhat unusual for an author to make an encore appearance, but let me share my rationale with you. Firstly, getting on a former Delta Force operator's bad boy list is probably not the best career move or personal health move. Our guest today has a certain reputation. If he receives bad service someplace, that property is likely to get blown up in his next novel. Second, the plot for his latest work, Dead Man's Hand, is torn almost directly from today's headlines, so I'm curious about the risks of writing something so contemporary. And lastly... There's a reason why Brad Taylor is a serial New York Times bestseller. He writes damn good fiction. Brad Taylor, welcome back to American Warrior Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Brad, if folks are familiar with the show, they probably heard you. And literally, I checked the calendar this morning, Brad. It was almost a year ago that we had you on last. For those who aren't familiar with you, 21 years in the Army, 8 years with the 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta. Those folks would call Delta Force, right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. You've got a master's degree in defense analysis from the Naval Postgraduate School with a concentration in regular warfare. And when you're not writing best-selling books, you serve as a security consultant on asymmetric threats for various agencies. Brad, I have a rule that nobody can come on the show. If they've written a book, I've got to read the book before I have them on the show. So I've got a stack of about half a dozen right now. I'm working my way through. And I, because it's my job, I, I schedule time to sit down and read and do the show prep. But uh, with Dead Man's Hand, I literally went through your book in two sittings. That's good to hear. You're what I call like a a next chapter author. And it's like, you know, I'm looking at the clock. I know I've got an appointment or I really should get to bed or whatever it might be. But it's like, well, just one more chapter. So good. I Just one more chapter. I want to see what happens. So uh, I'd highly encourage people to to read your stuff in the latest uh, Dead Man's Hand. Now, as I recall, Brad, you first started actively pursuing your your writing career while you were still teaching at the Citadel. Did you at that time have any concept that the Pike Logan series would blow up like this? No, none at all. I was actually just writing a book as a bucket list thing. I, I was always been a voracious reader. I just said, one day I'm going to write a book. Yeah, this is the 18th uh, Pike Logan series, and nobody's more surprised than me. <laughs> well, folks who read your book shouldn't be surprised. Give us just sort of a quick outline of Dead Man's Hand. What's, what's the storyline there? Yeah, well, you're hitting the nail on the head with that. I usually don't write about current events because the problem is they're current. And anything that can happen uh, in the real world could end up, you know, derailing the entire book. For this book, I wasn't intending to write about Ukraine and Russia, but I was keeping abreast of the conflict just because. And so uh, the more research I did on it, I ran into uh, what's known as a perimeter system in the old USSR, the old Soviet Union Back in the 80s, uh, Reagan came out with a strategic defense initiative, the old SDI Star Wars thing, 
which, you know, theoretically we bragged about we could knock down any missile that comes in the United States. That was the point of it. Of course, it never came anywhere near that. But it scared the heck out of Russia, uh, the Soviet Union. And so they created what they called the perimeter system, which was really Gen 1 artificial intelligence. They had the system in place that would take everything from seismic activity on the ground to communications from the Kremlin and military commands, and all these different feeds would come in. And if they were all met, it said that we'd conducted a first strike and, and the Soviet Union couldn't compete with us with SDI. And back then we had mutually assured destruction where we wouldn't attack you because we know that just the, the end of our country. Well, we started bragging about SDI. It scared Russia into thinking, you know, this is, increases their ability to do a first strike because they're saying that they can knock our missiles out. So they created the perimeter system, which was basically if we did a first strike and killed everybody in command, their missiles are going to launch. They're going up in the air. And it was just a deterrent thing. And it still exists. They still have it in, so in uh, Russia now. And I read that and thought, man, that's a story there. And so I modified it fictionally that uh, instead of it being a first strike, which is how the perimeter system is initiated, a nuclear first strike, Putin changed it to himself, him personally. If something happens to me, initiate the perimeter. And we called it the dead hand. NATO called it the dead hand in the West. It was called perimeter in, inside Soviet Union or inside Russia now. And I changed, and he, in, fictionally in the book, changes it to the dead man's hand, meaning if he dies, he's launching the missiles. And that's kind of the genesis. There's a, there's a group of Ukrainian partisans that are trying to eliminate Putin as the only way to end the war in Ukraine, not realizing that this dead man's hand exists. Wow. Yeah, I tell you, it's, it's uh, well, it's, it's, again, it's a great read. It's a little bit scary to think about that some of the stuff, and I don't know where the threshold is, Brad, but some of the stuff you're writing about actually does exist. Some of it may or may not exist yet, and I suppose they'll keep that as your secret, but it's a, it's a great read. Do you talk to your publicist or your agent about, hey, it's kind of risky, but I want to try this. I think it's timely. I think it will you know, it will catch on with the readers, or does Brad Taylor just pike Logan it? No, when, when most of the books, are, I, I'm trying to hit the bow wave of what's going on. I'm not writing about events that are currently occurring. I'm writing about, well, for instance, I wrote Ghosts of War in 2014, 2015-ish, which was precisely about uh, Russia going into Ukraine. And uh, that was always on the forefront. You know, it hadn't actually happened. For this one, I, I wrote my publisher and said, look, there's a risk on this. There are basically three different elements of risk. Number one, the Ukraine war ends before this book comes out. I said that's not really, I mean, that's not going to happen, but that is a risk. Something could, you know, catastrophically go one way or the other that, so that the uh, Russians end up taking over Ukraine or Ukrainians end up winning. I said, I don't see that happening, but it is a risk. Number two is Sweden and uh, Finland were joining NATO, and uh, I read the tea leaves on that and said the risk is that Sweden gets into NATO before the book comes out. Uh, once again, I said it's going to be a close race, and that's exactly what's happened. So Turkey's finally acquiesced sent to Parliament that said Sweden can join NATO, but it has not happened yet. And the third one was that uh, Putin leaves office, either by nefarious means or he just steps down or he gets sick or something like that. That would ruin the book. But I said, that's not going to happen. That guy's, he's a survivor. And then right after I turned the book in, Wagner Group with Pergozin invades uh, uh, Russia and said they're driving on to Moscow to do a coup. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. On the other hand, I was like, well, I hope he didn't really have the dead man saying we're in trouble. So how close is Sweden to, to joining NATO? I mean, I mean, I know there's certain steps that have to take place, but I think there has their parliament actually, the Turkish parliament actually voted on a section yet, or? They have not voted. They've, uh, 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 Erdogan's cleared it for a vote. He was holding it up. 
there's all kinds of machinations in there because Sweden has some guys that he calls terrorists. You've got to give me these guys back. Some Kurdish guys are living in Sweden. Sweden, of course, said, I'm not giving you guys just because you say that. And they said, well, we're not going to let you join NATO. Uh, another part of it was the ongoing feud with us over Soviet technology or Russian technology. They've got S-400 anti-aircraft systems that they bought from Russia, which can paint our F-35s, which we said you can't buy those things or you're not getting the F-35 because then Russia will know the technology we have. And they went ahead and bought them, so we didn't sell them F-35s. So now they want some Block 5 F-16s. We've held that up. They say you either give us the F-16s or Sweden's not joining NATO. So there's just all kinds of things pinging back and forth about Sweden joining NATO. But they, he's finally released it to uh, the parliament to vote on. They have not voted as of yet, but theoretically it should happen soon. And educate me here, Brad. Does According to the Charter of NATO, does each individual member, in effect, have sort of a veto power? Is that what's going on? Okay. That's exactly what's going on. Any individual member can say no, and if that happens, then they can't join. So Turkey was the last holdout, apparently. Uh, no, Hungary's still holding out as well, but Hungary's just holding out. They they haven't said anything bad about it. They just haven't voted on it yet. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm a lobbyist in my day job, and I'll, I'll take the vote. So, Brad, when we come back, I want to talk about more about your, your latest book and then the, the world situation. We don't very often get experts like you in studio, so we're really looking forward to that. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. Don't forget, you can find this broadcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. You can also look for us the most recent episodes on Apple, iHeart, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, wherever you stream your podcast, you can find us. Please, please share the word with your friends and counterparts and help us spread these important messages. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're very pleased to be joined by former Delta Force operator, now 17-time best-selling New York Times author, uh, Brad Taylor. We were just talking, Brad, your latest book, The Dead Man's Hand, is your 18th novel in the Pike Logan series. One of the things that I think contributes to the, the richness of, of your writing that makes it so enjoyable to read is that you and your, I think you call her your deputy commander of everything, like to, to yeah. personally visit the sites, the locations to be used in your book. And uh, there's nothing about, you know, seeing it, feeling it, smelling it. You know, that adds to the, makes it more vivid, I think, when you put pen to paper. But you, I guess, were not inclined to go traipsing around uh, Ukraine and Russia at, at this point in history? I know. The, uh, so I wasn't going to get shot at in Ukraine. And because I mentioned I wrote Ghosts of War, in an earlier book, I wasn't going to go into Russia because then I'd end up in a prison like the other reporters. So I had to, you know, I wanted to distance it from those two countries. Now they're central to the plot itself, but the action doesn't occur in those countries. So we went to, uh, let's see, we went to Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and Estonia to multiple cities around there to do uh, on-the-ground research. Normally, at least based on my previous conversation with you and some reading, I found that, Brad, that putting boots on the ground, like I said, does really help fill out the story, but it also allows for him to s some discoveries of local gems, and I know in your last book when we chatted, there was a, a couple of those that originally weren't planned, but were slipped in just based on your adventures in the country there. What, uh, Which were the ones that made it into Dead Man's Hand that you weren't necessarily aware of or planning on, but 
you said, oh, that that would be a cool place for such and such to happen. Yeah, actually, it's uh, uh, what I usually say is it's it's about fifty fifty. So I make a plan. This is what I'm going to go research at various countries, and then when I get there, fifty percent of it finds me that I didn't know it existed. Copenhagen was basically um, what I wanted to see. Was I, there wasn't anything really jumped out at me there. The, I went to Davoli, went to some, you know, all these other places. When I got to Sweden, though, is when I started seeing stuff I had, didn't have any idea of. The, uh, oh, well, there's a, they go to a karaoke bar in the book that uh, we were in Gamlestan, the old town. My wife likes doing karaoke, so we went to this karaoke place. They said they're doing karaoke. You know, being an Irish pub that was built in, like, the 1700s with a basement that was like a cavern like you'd see in a Count of Monte Cristo movie. And it was really cool. So I took a lot of pictures and said, I'm putting that in a book. Uh, we got to um, Sweden, and uh, we went to look at this is the opposite of that. So, you know, Pike's Cover Organization is an archaeological research company. So I always try to find something. There's got to be some reason for him to be in the country cover-wise. And they have a lot of runestones inside uh, Sweden. They've got this runestone path you can go look at and all these runestones. In my mind, I thought, you know, this is going to be like Stonehenge, be something really cool. And we got there, and they're literally like graves. They're like tombstones, six-foot-tall tombstones. In the middle of some farmer's field, just one stone sitting out there. It's all carved up. And, you know, as we went along, I was like, this isn't going to work. Not that this is going to work. I still made the book, but describing the book, why that stuff, I was like, man, that was a bad idea. When well, Finland, we went to an old fortress. It was like, uh, well, it had been all the way up to the Ottomans. All kinds of Russians had fought there, but it, it was a really old fortress on an island. And we went out there and looked around at it, and uh, it was a really cool fortress. But nothing was really pinging on me. And at the very end of it, this guy says, our tour guide says, and he's pointing at a map and says, this is where the secret tunnel is. It goes into the mainland, into Finland. I said, what? He said, yeah, there's a tunnel that goes from this island into the mainland. And that's how they get emergency vehicles in and things like that. And, you know, you you don't read about that. It's not on any tour guides or anything like that. As soon as I heard that, I was like, okay, I need to know more about that tunnel because that's making the book. (laughs) And, you know, I would never have known that if I was just using Google Maps. I chuckled because the runestones didn't make it in the book, but you were channeling, or I should say Pike Logan was channeling a little bit about you because his, the character was not at all impressed with him either. So it sounds like that was a direct, uh, yeah. a direct spin out. We went to this one spot with this council of elders are supposed to be, and it's literally just about, you know, it's eight rocks in a circle with a fire pit in the middle. And I'm like, this looks like a Girl Scout camp. You're telling me this is here <laughs> from the 13th century or something? I'm, I'm not buying it. Well, okay, let's let's drop it now. I don't want to get hate mail from the local chamber of commerce. Um, how long was it from when you decided that you were going to uh, pursue this this storyline for your next novel? Did, did you feel like there was sort of a, a ticking clock, and you m- might have pushed it a little harder than you normally do, or you just, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be? I went with it's going to be what it's going to be on the grand scheme of things. But on the margins, I, it was kind of ticking clock. I had to keep abreast of what's going on in Ukraine, uh, all the various machinations that are happening there, because some of that could have altered the plot. Well, some of it actually did. For instance, the original plot was Finland and Sweden joining NATO, because they're joining as a group. They swore up and down. We're coming into NATO as a partnership, as a pair. Uh, it's either both of us or none of us. Well, halfway through writing the book, Finland said, that nah, kind of changed my mind. Everybody seems to be mad at Sweden. We're going to go ahead and join. And they did. So I had to rewrite those sections. You wrote a, a blog. If folks visit bradtaylorbooks.com, there's there's some articles you've posted up there. And, and one of them, and I, I don't remember the date, I want to say maybe from October of, of 22, you wrote a blog about counter-leadership targeting 
which, you know, based precisely on the, the calls at that time to remove Putin, uh, which is precisely the topic yeah. of Dead Man's Hand. But you cite several examples of why this is a really bad idea. And generally, it's not, it isn't successful in achieving the, the wished for outcomes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you do kind of leadership targeting, whether it's a substate group or a state, you know, a rational actor, meaning that somebody that actually has goals and isn't John Hinckley out shooting the president for Jody Foster, uh, they're going to do it for one or two reasons. They're going to do it for dislocation, which means that guy has some kind of uh, martial skill that you want to remove from the battlefield, like when we killed Yamamoto in World War II. You know, we want to get him out of the, off the scene. When we hit Soleimani, uh, Iranian Quds Force commander, three years ago this month, actually, that was for that, dislocation. This guy's doing really good on the battlefield. He's got all these skill sets he's doing. We want to get rid of him. The other reason you do it is replacement, meaning that you're going to get rid of the guy in charge because the next guy coming in is going to be more amenable to what you want. So if you think about in World War II when the German high command was trying to get rid of Hitler, they were doing it because they wanted to sue for peace. And so they get rid of Hitler, then they could sue for peace. The problem with that is that it's very hard to find somebody in the, in the chain of command that's going to take over that's going to have different views than the person you took out. And sometimes those views, and they're much better at what they do. For instance, Israel in, I think it was 1992, killed the head of Hezbollah. I said, that, you know, this guy's a thorn on our side. We're going to get rid of him. Well, what they got in replacement was Nasrallah, who's still in command now, and he was 10 times better at running Hezbollah than the original guy was. He got in all the ballistic missiles. He took over parliament. He's got 40% of the parliament. It's all Hezbollah people now. He's got a political wing. He was very, very, very good at being in charge of Hezbollah. And he was about 10 times better than the guy they removed. So by removing the first guy, they kind of shot themselves in the foot. Brad, we got just about a minute before the next break, but I'm just curious, and I don't know if you can answer this now or we should come back, but at which point, because you mentioned Yamamoto, and, and I know in the book, in fact, you reference our, you know, we've got a policy, I use the quotation fingers, of not assassinating other leaders. But is it in, in a time of war, at which point do you cross that line where it's no longer an assassination it's just a, a tactical, legitimate military action. Yeah, that's, uh, we probably should wait for the break because it's a little bit complex just to throw out. Okay, fair enough. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bieler Garcia. Again, we're talking to Brad Taylor. He's got his 18th book out. I haven't read all of them. I read a couple. I love them. Uh, and this one in particular is very interesting. Dead Man's Hand is the latest release. And it's particularly interesting because you're reading this novel and it seems like you're actually interacting uh, in real time with what's happening out in the world out there right now with with the Russian and the Ukraine conflict and, and some uh, some other bad actors out there. And Pike Logan and his team get stuck in the middle, and they do it in their typical Pike Logan style. They end up resolving things. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back. Stick around. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. American Warrior Radio is coming to you from the Silencer Central Studios. Begin by visiting silencercentral.com to learn if owning a silencer is legal in your state. The experts will then work with you to find the right suppressor for your needs. They'll complete all the paperwork and then ship it right to your front door. At Silencer Central, they make silence simple. We're speaking with Brad Taylor. Brad's a former Delta Force operator and a best-selling author. He's got uh, his 18th book just came out. Dead Man's Hand, and, and Brad, we are talking before the break about one of the, the central plot points of Dead Man's Hand is a, an attempt by some 
uh, Ukrainians working with the Russian um, intelligence services to assassinate Vladimir Putin. And we're just talking about the, you know, you're, this is your expertise. You're the real world expert out there on this and how, you know, when does it cross over? Because I, I thought, just like in the book, that we had a policy against assassinating people. And then last year, we, you know, took out a car with, uh, I want to say an Iranian, one of the Iranian guys, and you remember his name, I don't, but I was, I was thinking, now, wait a minute, when did we, did that become okay all of a sudden, or what's changed? Yeah, so it's, nothing's really changed, it's it's the way you read the thing, so basically the history of this is uh, the church committee back in the 70s had a committee to look at the assassination attempts that the CIA had done, political assassinations, like trying to get rid of Fidel Castro, we did some things in the Congo, all these other things, that is big. The church committee eviscerated the CIA and basically found all this nefarious stuff going on. And they were going to make legislation forbidding assassination. The legislation was never created and never signed into law. And because it wasn't, Ford was the first president who just made an executive order saying it's 123333 that says that no uh, United States person or anybody working for the United States, you couldn't just hire somebody from Ukraine or anything like that, would do assassinations. Well, the problem with that is that they didn't define assassination. What does that mean? And when that executive order came out, the Department of Defense then was like, okay, wait a minute. Uh, if you're saying assassination is, I know what the target is, and I've decided to take that target out, is that assassination? Is that the end of assassination? And they got worried because if you're going to battle and you say, shoot the tank that's got all the antennas because that's where the commander is, have you just assassinated somebody? You know who the target is. You directly told your guy to shoot it. Is that assassination? So they had a lot of lawyers went together, uh, made a bunch of memorandum, and said that, okay, here's the left and right limits of assassination. And basically, assassination, if you're going to call it an actual assassination, it has a political motive to it. You're doing it for political purposes, not doing it for conflict termination. So anybody that's running a war, be it Putin or Hitler, or anything, even the church committee said we're not talking about Hitler or anything of that nature. If you're running a war, then you are a combatant, and it's not assassination. Now, Soleimani, the guy you were talking about, who runs the Quds Force, it's running around, he's training Hezbollah, he's there working with the Houthis in Yemen, he's working with Hamas and all that. He is a general in uniform doing stuff that's against the United States. Therefore, he's a combatant, and it's not assassination. It is, he's a, a lawful combatant that we get. What, from Brad Taylor's perspective, what is the potential end game in Ukraine? I mean, I just, you know, Russians philosophy for years has just been to keep sending more bodies into the meat grinder um, you know eventually you run out of soldiers and you run out of bullets is that kind of where we are with that conflict right now we are uh, it's because I mean they they didn't make a breakthrough they, they started doing their uh, offenses and they didn't get the, the the land they wanted now it's hit winter time it's almost impossible for any lines to change during the winter just as it's so brutal over there and Russia has mass mass is a characteristic all its own so when you've got 10 more, you know, 10 times the personnel that the opposing force does, that doesn't matter how sorry you are, you, you've you got mass. You know, the Korean War, the, the uh, Chinese used to win, overrun uh, U.S. positions, not because they were better fighters, just because they had 10 to 1 odd, throw them up against it, eventually they'll run out of bullets and we'll win. And they did. And Russia's kind of doing that right now. They have the logistics capability, they have the infrastructure to keep building weapon systems, and they have the manpower. Now, whether that manpower stays in place, because right now he's drawn from the outer regions of uh, Russia. In fact, one of the problems the Russian army has is not, nobody speaks Russian. They're all from Dagestan and all these other areas, and they don't they speak their own dialect. They don't speak Russian. And eventually, 
those people don't really factor into the Kremlin thinking because they don't really have a vote. They're out there in the middle of, you know, in redneck jail. And he shied away from doing conscription with, you know, the hometown Russian guys because that would then cause a problem. If we don't support Ukraine, if they, they run out of ammunition, like I was just using the hypothetical in the Korean War, then, yeah, the mass will win. That's why it's so critical that we keep supporting them. I mean, we're not, you know, everybody says, I don't want to give my blood and treasure into Ukraine. Well, you're not giving blood. That's a whole point. I mean, you can give them some bullets. Nobody's saying the U.S. is going to go in there and fight. If you give them enough bullets, they will prevail. If they run out of bullets, then the mass is going to win. One of the things I love about your books, too, is is sort of uh, not quite James Bondish, but you do incorporate technologies that are pretty fascinating and sometimes scary. And I may be a latecomer to this game, but something that appears uh, plays a big role in your book, and we're also seeing this on the world stage now, is something that most Americans think of as a toy, a drone, has now legitimately been weaponized and is making a, an impact, a visible impact on the battlefield. Are we in a, a dangerous new phase here? Yeah, we are. Actually, uh, I'm going to pat myself on the back, because about four books ago, Ring of Fire, maybe even six books ago, I used a weaponized commercial drone to try to assassinate the President of the United States. Uh, and I put in acknowledgments, you know, we haven't seen this yet, but it's coming, mark my words, and now it's here. You buy these commercial drones, they're super cheap, and they're super uh, effective at doing what they need to do. You put a little explosives on them and chase them down. I mean, I've seen videos where a drone rider, he's got a camera on, he's chasing a single Russian soldier who's trying to get away from the drone, and then the drone just runs into him, and the camera fades to black, of course. But, yeah, because they're very hard to knock out of the air. The uh, It's kind of like uh, armor systems. We ran into a problem with tanks in that in order to defend against an anti-tank missile, it requires, I'm just going to make up numbers, it takes me $10 to defeat that missile, and then it costs them $1 to make a missile that will defeat that armor. Then it costs me another $10 to defeat that missile, and it costs them another dollar to defeat that armor. We're kind of that way with the drone systems. They can get a drone that costs, you know, 40 bucks on Amazon and reconfigure it to have a bomb in it, and then we have to spend our systems to knock that drone out. It costs $10,000. For a single drone. I mean, they were talking about using Patriot missiles against drones. I'm, you got to be kidding me. It's a you know, $20 million missile going up to get hit a $10,000 drone. And that's a problem set with it. One of the main characters in Dead Man's Hand is a Israeli uh, former Mossad agent. And the, some of the technologies that uh, Pike Logan and his team employ in the book are come out of her uh, her suitcase, I'll say. And um, is, is that still, is that an accurate depiction? I mean, are they, are the Israelis really kind of on the cutting edge of developing some of these technologies? Because when you, when you mention these drones, the first thing that comes to my mind, Brad, is a fly swatter. They have a, a drone system, which I use in the book, and it's a real drone system. It's being used in Hamas territory right now. And they built it on racing drones. There's a whole, uh, you know, niche segment of people that race drones through obstacle courses. And they developed AI so the drone will avoid the obstacles and, Israel took that thing and turned it into a suicide drone, and now it can fly. They can send it into a building, and it can fly through the rooms, seeing, sending back real-time information. It can actually drop to the ground and turn into a landmine. It can blow up on command. It can blow up directionally. There's just a bazillion things this thing can do, and it actually comes on a mother drone. So there's six of these little bitty drones on this bigger drone. They can fly the big drone in, and all six of them leave the, little, leave the big drone and go on their little mission. That's pretty impressive. It's kind of scary, actually. I, I very scary. What I mean, what's to keep some bad guy, some knucklehead, from loading? I don't know what the range on these things are, but you know, loading up on one side of the southern or northern border and just flying these missions 
directly into the United States. Well, that's the they haven't cracked that in technology wise. That's the one limiting factor on them. They've got about a twenty minute flight time. Okay. So you've got to be they're used for urban combat where you're outside a building, bad guys in the building, you could launch it at a building right then, but you're not gonna fly it, you know, eighteen football fields and then do something with it because it'll run out of battery space. Okay, well, that makes me feel a little bit better. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Bueller-Garcia, I'm talking with best-selling author, former Delta Force operator Brad Taylor. His latest book, Dead Man's Hand, is just out. It's a great read. I really enjoyed it. And as I was telling Brad, I mean, I actually read the whole thing in two settings and just really engaged with the characters. Brad, when we come back, I'd like to talk, if you don't mind, pick your brain a little bit more about current events, but then get back to talking about actually writing books and uh, maybe what's coming down the line in the future for Pike Logan and his team. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Ben Vila Garcia, here on American Warrior Radio. Uh, don't forget, you can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or on your favorite streaming platform. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're having a very uh, fascinating and insightful conversation with best-selling author Brad Taylor. Brad is an asymmetric warfare expert and did stuff in places where you can't even talk about as a member of the Delta Force, Brad. Well, I guess that maybe an occupational hazard for folks like you is on occasion you cross paths with knuckleheads like me who... You know, I've become geopolitical experts because I watched every episode of Rambo. Oh, but actually, I haven't. I was just kidding about that. But how often do you find yourself having to explain to people like me that, look, it's not as easy as it sounds? For example, all the Middle East problems won't be solved if we just cut the head off the Iranian snake and everything will be better tomorrow. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. I actually find myself doing a lot because... The TV, when you watch the news, it's basically bumper stickers. What can I say in a bumper sticker? And that that's not how the real world works. I remember I grew up in Conroe, Texas, you know, a small town in Texas, and they had the uh, Iranian hostage situation way back when, you know, I was in high school. And our tire store, I had signs out saying, bomb Iran, bomb Iran, and I was all with them. Yeah, we just blew them up. Well, then, you know, you grow up and study that problem set, and you're like, bombing Iran's not going to get the hostages back. That's not, that's not the solution, even though we want to do it. And I hear people saying that now about, you know, we're getting attacked in, uh, they just did another strike in Al-Assad Air Base. The militias are attacking Al-Assad, and they're all controlled by Iran. Iran's the one directing it. So, you know, we should just go back and blow them up, and that'll be the end of that. And there's several reasons why that's not, it's much easier to say than it is to do. It's easy to get on TV and say, we look weak, we look weak, we should blow everybody up. We're in uh, Iraq at the behest of the government. It's a sovereign state. They've invited us in to help fight the ISIS problems that they've got. On top of that, strategically, we're in there as a bulwark against Iran. Iran would like nothing better than to turn Iraq into a client state, and they're close to doing it anyway. But if, if we leave Iraq, then they have a land bridge from Iran into Syria, down to Hezbollah. Right now, they've got to fly everything in. If you see the strikes that happen, Israel is always striking airports in Syria. That's because they're flying in missiles for Hezbollah. They can't just drive them across the border. If they owned Iraq, then they're basically going to have free reign all over that area. It's hard for us to strike back because, and it'd be like, imagine this, if Iraq had a military base inside America and somebody got mad at him, threw a Molotov cocktail across the fence, and then he went out and started shooting up the houses, 
we'd say, get the hell out of my country. Mm-hmm. Well, if they do that, then Iran's going to own Iraq. And that's precisely why they're doing it. We have a history, and everybody's read it, and they all know it, that if you poke the bear hard enough, then they'll quit. From first with leaving Vietnam, then we went to Lebanon as a peacekeeping force. They blew up the barracks. What do we do? We left. We went into Somalia as a, uh, to help with a famine. We had the Black Hawk Down incident. What happened? We left. Left it to them. And so they kind of learned that, you know, if we poke these guys bad enough, they'll just leave. And you hear people on TV saying it right now. We ought to just leave there. Let Iraq go to pieces. We'll just leave there. Well, that's exactly what they want. It's precisely what they're throwing us. Brad, what is the alternative? Because I'm in one of those, uh, I guess, in that camp in that at some point, and I've heard this from people that have served over there, that in, in many of the cultures in that part of the world that they, you know, violence is really the only thing they respect. You know, at some point you can carry a big stick, but, I mean, when do you swing it? You don't have to tell everybody. You don't have to telegraph things. In fact, have you ever seen the film Open Range with Kevin Costner yeah. Robert Duvall? Probably one of the most accurate Western gunfights I've, I've ever seen. Out there. I mean, they, they actually have to reload and, and weird things like that. But <laughs> it, there's that opening part of the gunfight where there's the bad guys who've got their hired gun, and, and Kevin Costner's got some, some skills of his own, and they're facing off in the street, and Costner says, are you the one that shot my friend? And the guy, yeah. bad guy says yes. And Costner then doesn't go into a soliloquy about revenge and 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 lawlessness or, or challenge him, okay, then, you know, get ready to have a duel. He just pulls a pistol and just shoots him in the forehead. Bang. End of story. A part of me, I, I guess, I'm wondering, do we maybe, should we start doing more of that? Sure. And uh, if you had a perfect situation like Kevin Costner was in where the guy admitted, I'm the bad guy, yeah, put the bullet to the head. Well, we're not dealing with that. So these militias, I mean, they're shopkeepers by day, militias by night. So yeah. what are you going to put the gun to? So now we're going to go into Mosul and kick in all the doors. We're going to kick in for every one door we kick in where the bad guy's in there. We're going to kick nine more in where it's just a family who now are the bad guys because we've ripped through their house. And it's very, very hard to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Iran, I mean, Iran's not, we don't have a message from Iran saying, tonight I want you to bomb al-Assad, signed Khomeini. I mean, there's nothing like that. You know, it'd be nice if you just were able to, thump somebody in the head, and I'd be all for that. If you could pinpoint this is it. And in some cases we have, like we did do a drone strike and killed uh, one of the militia's commanders along with his lieutenants, and all we did was hit one car. Mm-hmm. Those kind of surgical strikes, yeah, that's something you can do if you've got the precise intelligence to do it. On the other hand, we've made drone strikes. For instance, after the uh, Abbey Gate suicide bombing, we tracked this car all day long and said, okay, that's the, the mastermind of the Abbey Gate suicide bombing. He gets out of his car. All his kids run up to him, blow up uh, the car, yeah. kill the entire family. Turns out he was just running errands. Yeah. Had nothing to do with it whatsoever. So it's not as simple as, I mean, I wish the bad guy would say, stand there right in front of our face and say, I'm the one that did it. Come get me. But it doesn't work like that in a real world. Yeah. No, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Life's, life's not that clean. I wanted to real, touch on something coming back to the technology. You In your book, you do rot. Actually, after the at the end of the book, you talk about how some of the technology that you or, or your characters are using in the novel exists, and some of it doesn't. Dot dot dot. Yes. Do you, Brad, feel like you have a responsibility as an author if you find out about some tech that's featured and it may be open source, but I don't feel like promoting it to the world just yet. Well, most of the stuff I find out nowadays, I've been out of the game for a while, so originally it was hard to write stuff without putting classified in because I knew what was classified, but now technology has gone so far ahead, I have no idea what's classified or not anymore. I'm not read into the programs, and most of the stuff I find are criminals. I see them 
crime being done, and the, you know the FBI, everybody knows about it, but the average American uh, public doesn't. And I see some threats that exist just when I see it, just because of my background. For instance, they you, the one thing you'd like is a floor plan if you're going to hit at something. You want to know what the floor plan is. Uh, that'd be a, a good piece of intelligence. But we always train for an unknown floor plan because you never had that. I got a Roomba for Christmas and was running the Roomba, and it takes about uh, use artificial intelligence. It takes about six hours to go around the house the first time, and then eventually it gets it down to an hour to vacuum your floor because it's mapped up your house. And then it sends that floor plan up to the cloud. And I was like, that is a huge vulnerability. If some criminal could crack that cloud, they'll have my floor plan. They'll know everything about my house. So I obviously don't use the Roomba, but I did use that in a book. Now, is that giving away a secret? No, I mean, everybody's yeah. using Roombas. You should know you're sending that stuff to the cloud. Well, I tell you, my, my favorite technology in your book, well, my second favorite, I don't want to give too much away, was pretty old school where basically just, you know, turn on the Find Me app on the cell phone and, you know, throw it on the bad guy's car and, and there you go, you got a tracking device. Uh, you, you've mentioned, Brad, before in our conversation, and just a couple minutes left here, that, you know, the character, the challenge of, of writing novels is characters have to progress because that's what happens. The human condition is always evolving. And all of us age. Is there... I mean, is Pike Logan going to live forever, or are there plans to for him to train a new replacement, or do you just have to start a whole new character series, or you'll blow up that bridge when you come to it? Well, I'm close to blowing up that bridge right now, but I've decided I talked to there's another author named Robert Crace, who I read his books. He writes murder mysteries, and he's been writing since the 80s, and Elvis Cole is his main character, and his main character is a Vietnam vet. And he talked about it in the first few books. He was a Vietnam vet. He was in one of the LERP companies and, you know, 75th Ranger guy. Well, now he'd be in a wheelchair running around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but he's still writing books. You know, Elvis Cole's still the prime investigator. He just quit talking about Vietnam. And so I asked him one day, you know, how do you handle that? What are you going to do? And he said, I decided that Elvis Cole's going to be like Superman. He just doesn't age. Technology will go wrong. Things will change. But he's always going to be Elvis Cole. And I said to myself, that's what I'm doing with Pike Logan. So... Administrations will change, new team members will come, new team members will go. But at this stage in my writing career, I'm just like, I'm not even going to deal with, you know, Pike's got a knee replacement because he's <laughs> done too many jumps type stuff. Well, I, I, I've enjoyed the, the progression because one thing, I, like I said, I have not, admittedly, have not read every book in your series. But one thing I noticed in Dead Man's Hand was the the there was a higher than normal level of tension between Pike Logan and his team and the command authority. And I was thinking, well, isn't that interesting? I want to put a little moral dilemma in there because the uh, we were already talking about second and third order effects of kind of leadership targeting. And the whole plot of the book was, okay, bring that second order effect to, you know, turn it to 11, as uh, mm -hmm. you'd say. And so now he's, he would really like to help these guys out to uh, change the tide of war in Ukraine. But in so doing, he's going to harm everybody else in the world. And, sure. You know, which way do I go here? Brad, it's been a joy to speak to you again. One other really quick question. Is TripAdvisor really the best resource for spies all over the globe? No. <laughs> There's a, you know, it's the best to be uh, uh, backpackers. They have blogs everywhere. You can find all okay. kinds of stuff from backpacking blogs. Fair enough. Brad Taylor, thanks so much for joining us here on American Warrior Radio, and uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. I appreciate it. Good talking to you. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find out more. Visit bradtaylorbooks.com. His latest book is Dead Man's Hand. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, all policies and procedures that remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. 
Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.